today. I was I was reminded of a story I heard recently of um, uh, one of my mentors. Uh, he's been in the ministry a long time, and um, he was leading worship and uh, did a baptism early in the service. And uh, right as he was walking from the pew uh, to the pulpit, uh, he got a really bad runny nose or a real bad bloody nose, and um, couldn't preach that Sunday. And he said, "Yeah, y'all saw baptism. We worshipped. Go home." And um, I kind of feel like doing that right now. Um, not that I don't want to preach, but it's just really powerful uh, to see baptism. Uh, when we see that as really a community event that happens among us, and not just something that happens for the people on stage, you really see uh, within yourself, you see Amos, uh, that God has put his mark on you. It's really a miracle. Uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, I, we come as little children. Uh, we come very, very hungry, starving in fact. And uh, we need you to feed us. We uh, open our mouths uh, that you might feed us with your word. Uh, Lord, we know that we don't live by bread alone, but we live uh, by every word that comes from your mouth. Uh, Lord, I pray you would um, make up for all my insufficiencies uh, tonight. In Christ's name, amen. One of the most, I think, unfamiliar things uh, that we do here in our service uh, is the thing that we did earlier with our confession of sin. And I think it's unfamiliar for a lot of us because we really spend our whole weeks uh, putting uh, forth our pol- the polished version of ourselves, uh, the pretty version of ourselves, uh, the part of ourselves that doesn't have any dents or dings. Uh, that we keep uh, all the things that we don't want to show other people. We hide those things. We, we cover them up. We would uh, never dare put those things out in the open, out in the public. And then you enter this space, and you do it with 200 other people. You really tell the truth on yourselves, maybe for the only time all week long. You say that you're a sinner. And a lot of us, we equate sin with just doing bad things. But what we saw in Isaiah 1, and what you'll see in our text today, is uh, that sin really isn't about doing bad things. That sin really is uh, living our lives independent from God. We really think that living our lives independent from God is going to go better than living our lives dependently on God. And man, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can live your lives independent from God. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can be a rebel. Uh, And we've seen a couple of these as we've been in Acts. Uh, Earlier, uh, the chapter before this in chapter 8, we really talked, we saw two different stories. We saw one about Simon the Magician. And Simon the Magician, the way that he lived independently from God was that he was a a control freak, complete and utter control freak. That's Simon the Magician. And then we saw the Ethiopian eunuch. And the way that we saw that he was living his life apart from God is that he had lived all of his life up until the point that we read in Acts chapter 8, that he would live in it according to, Uh, to the fame of the world and to riches. And we don't see today in our text, we don't see a control freak per se. We don't see someone who relied on uh, on their wealth per se. But what we do see today is someone who relied on their religiosity. We see it here in Saul. And of the three conversion stories, of those three, this is the most famous. This is the one that people know the most about. And it's about a guy named Saul. And we've actually seen Saul. Uh, Saul uh, was um, in chapter 7 at, at the end of Stephen's account. And this conversion of Saul is the one that the church holds up 
Uh, his, his, as we'll see, his, um, his conversion is dramatic. His conversion is sudden. And drama plays really well in our culture, doesn't it? And it plays really well in the church. And so what usually happens in the church, if you've been around the church for a long time, is that conversion stories that are dramatic and are sudden are put up as model conversion stories. But I would say that what makes Saul's conversion so significant for us isn't the drama. It's not the suddenness of it. But what makes it so significant is that a religious person actually can be converted. Now, man, this is going to be a really important message for a lot of us. If you would call yourself a rank-and-file churchgoer, a rank-and-file Christian, tonight's message is going to ask you the question of what kind of person you actually are. Are you converted? Or are you just religious? And my hope tonight is to show, my hope tonight in this passage, you'll be able to distinguish which one you actually are. I think it's also important for those of us who are really leery of the word conversion. Maybe you hear the word conversion, it stirs up all kinds of images for you that are distasteful. Images of being intolerant, images of being arrogant, images of being narrow-minded. But what I think you'll see is that your fears associated with conversion are really about religious people. It's not really about converted people. So let's read our story in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way means the church, the Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. 
There's really two uh, points I want to make tonight. The first one is spiritual blindness, and the second one is spiritual sight. Spiritual blindness, spiritual sight. So let's deal with blindness first. We really see blindness in verses 1 to 9. As you look at that first half of that passage, those nine verses, uh, there's two kinds of blindness that you see. In the first two verses, you see blindness that comes from religion. And in verses 3 to 9, you see blindness that comes from the truth. So look at the first two verses there. You see that he's totally blind to the reality of the gospel, totally blind to the reality of Jesus because of his total and utter commitment to his religion. And that's the funny thing about being religious, isn't it? Most of the time, like Saul, religious people are totally unaware that they are blind to true spiritual realities. In fact, according to their own conscience, they're in the light. And when they're told that they're in the dark, it's infuriating for them. This is what happens to Saul. At the end of chapter 7, Stephen has been railing against the Jewish leaders. And Stephen's been railing on them, telling them that they are in the dark because they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And Saul, sitting in the background, listening to Stephen make these accusations, and he is boiling. Because the last thing that Saul can possibly believe about himself is that he's in the dark. To believe that he's blind. Because what he does is that he lives his whole life with his, his spiritual resume in front of him. His moral resume. He reads it constantly. He's always trying to improve his moral resume that he's got before the eyes of his heart. And on his moral resume are things like this. The first is a, is, is a deep spiritual heritage. See, Saul's a Jew. He's one of the chosen people. Not only that, that he was baptized, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, the most prestigious Jewish group. He's a real blue blood, according to his heritage. That's what he's looking at. He's also looking at his supreme religious training. His religious training comes from a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel is the most respected of all the Pharisees. And if you were trained to be a Pharisee under Gamaliel, it's like going to Harvard. It's like going to Yale for religious training. He's got the heritage, he's got the training, and he's got the gut. And in his gut is this religious commitment. He follows the rules, he's got the regulations down, the policies are all in track. Because this is of utmost importance to him. You could never, ever, ever, ever call Saul flaky. And lastly, what he's always looking at is that he's a defender. He's a ruthless defender for his religion. That's why he's seeking to destroy the Christian church. Because they're a perceived opponent to what he's most committed to. So he walks around all day looking at his resume, improving on his resume, becoming the kind of person that we see in those first two verses. And you know what these kind of people are like, don't you? It's it's an obnoxious street preacher. It's the political zealot who demonizes the other party and cannot be critical of his or her own party. It's the parent who only believes in one way to educate children. It's the UK basketball fan zealot. I was with 24,000 of them yesterday at Rep Arena. And they breathe threats of equally zealot Duke and L fans. 
But here's the problem with zealous, deeply committed people, especially Christians, is that they think they're converted. Saul certainly thought he was in, but the truth is, is that he was blind to the fact that he was out. So what needs to happen to religious people to realize that they're not converted? They need a collision with the truth. And boy, does he get a collision, doesn't he? He collides with the truth, and it results in a different kind of blindness. He's, these first two verses, blinded because of his religion. Now he's blinded because of the truth. And this truth sends Saul into a kind of shock. Look at it. You see it in verse 8. I love this line. It says, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So Saul moves from a blindness that he's unaware of, the blindness of religion, to a blindness that he's deeply aware of, that of the truth. And the truth comes to Saul when Jesus speaks from heaven in a bright light. Remember, I told you it's dramatic. And it forces Saul to face the truth about himself. You see the question that Jesus asked him there? Jesus asked the question, why do you persecute me? It's a strange question, isn't it? Because Saul's not been persecuting Jesus. He thinks he's persecuting the church. But what Jesus is doing here is that he's giving us and Saul a view into how he identifies with his people. Because to inflict pain on the church is to inflict pain on Jesus. So the principle is clear here. It's not just he's inflicting pain on a horizontal plane. He's inflicting pain on a vertical plane. Saul needed to see that he's not just a jerk because he needs to be kind to Christians. What Saul needs to see is that he hates Jesus. It's our problem too, isn't it? The Bible's brutally honest with us about how our sin is first against God, not also first against God and secondarily against one another. Let me give you a few examples. Take money, for instance. Take greed. The Bible says that God owns all things, including your money, including my money. Therefore, we're not owners of our possessions, but we're stewards. But when we're greedy, we're not primarily demonstrating our lack of concern for the poor. We're primarily living in rebellion against God, who says we're only a steward. Do you see it? Take this one for um, an example. Uh, Take uh, being insubordinate. God's put all kinds of leaders in your life, whether you like it or not. He's put government officials over you. He's put church leaders over you. He's given you supervisors in your workplace. He's given you parents if you're a child in the room. We don't get to pick these people. God picks them for us. And so when we disrespect them, we're showing much more than insubordinate hearts. We're demonstrating our distrust in God who's put them in their position over us. How about this one? Uh, How about uh, discrimination? Just to remind you, just remind myself tonight, it, it was God's idea to create two genders, not one. It was God's idea to create all different kinds of races, not just one. But when we prefer one gender, or we prefer one race over others, then we're redefining who bears God's image. And so when we discriminate, it's not just 
against other people. It's also a sin against God, the creator, who created all these people in his image. So, friends, have, have you come to face-to-face with the truth of who you really are? You're not just insubordinate. You're not just discriminatory. You're not just greedy. But you hate Jesus, and I do too. Saul had to come to the realization that this was true for him, that he's so much more than just a mean person. He was a rebel against God, the God that he was trying so hard to impress. So that's one side of the coin for us tonight, one side of the truth that we've got to collide with, that we're rebels. But the other side of the coin says that God is gracious. And Paul, Saul here, encounters a God of grace. And this is the first time he's seen this, and we see it really when we get to Acts chapter 26. When we get to Acts chapter 26, uh, Saul is standing He's standing, he's on trial, and he's given the story of his conversion. And when he gives the story of his conversion, he gives a lot more details in chapter 26 than we get in chapter 9. In chapter 26, he says this. Um, Saul, he, he recounts the story. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saying that about Jesus. Saul responds with, who are you, Lord? And then in chapter 26, Saul quotes Jesus and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things to which you have seen in me and to those which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that you may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So do you realize what's going on right there? Do you realize what Saul's trying to get them to see? Saul's trying to show them that immediately he goes from being the biggest opponent of the Christian faith to the biggest proponent of it. Sure, Jesus is disturbed by the condition of Saul's heart. That's why he confronts him about being a rebel. But immediately... He commissions this rebel to take the message of Christianity to the whole world. It had to be unthinkable for Saul. Because up to this point, the only God that Saul ever knew was a God of wrath. And we know that that's what the kind of God that Saul believed in because that's what Saul so clearly embodied. But then he meets Jesus. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the Jesus he meets is altogether different than the God of his imagination. Because Jesus looks past Saul's former ways. Jesus doesn't put Saul on probation so that he might prove who he is before he can be approved and then commissioned. So you see a gracious God. And our problem is just the same as Saul's. We construct the God of our own imagination. And he usually looks a lot like us. Either we have a God of love who requires nothing from us, no repentance, no obedience, or we have a God of judgment who we are constantly looking to for approval. And what the Bible does is presents us an alternative in Jesus. And the Jesus that we see critiques our cartoon gods. He's loving, but his love isn't just sentimentality. His love is costly, it's cost him his life. But he's holy. 
He's so holy that no person who's ever been born could meet his standard. That's why he has to send Jesus who can accrue a perfect record. And Saul faces the truth of who Jesus is and all his grace and it blinds him for three days. His eyes were opened and he saw nothing. But how does this collision with the truth happen? Should you expect on a, a the road of Nicholasville uh, to collide with Jesus in this way. Maybe. But one thing I can assure you of is that this collision is going to happen from the outside. See, I, I think this is the best. Uh, it's been pretty heavy up to this point. I'm about ready to lighten up on you. Um, it's kind of like having bad breath. You never know you got bad breath. You think you're good, and you have no idea that your breath stinks, and then you need someone to come very close to you and have the courage to tell you that your breath stinks. And God is more than willing to get very, very, very close to you and tell you things about yourself and about him that you don't want to know. So in conversion, you've got to deal with the God who's really there. There's a God who's coming at you. He's going to deal with you. He comes in on you when you're blind, and he comes in so that you might have sight. This is blindness, friend. The blindness that comes from religion, the blindness that comes from the truth. Now you see sight. That's really what you see in verses 10 to 19. What begins to happen with Saul? How does he get his sight back? Well, if you hold up Saul as... Uh, the model for what conversions look like. Very few of us are going to have much assurance because we aren't converted in this kind of way. But what we can do is that we can draw out the results of his conversions. We can see what applications we can make for ourselves. See, conversion at its most basic level, especially for religious people, is the movement from blindness to sight. So the results from moving from blindness to sight, we can see right here in this text. I think there's three. Uh, The first one is uh, conversion results in moving from strength to weakness, from opposition to intimacy, and from isolation to community. Strength to weakness, opposition to intimacy, and isolation to community. If you've made those movements, you've got spiritual sight. Let's look at the first one, strength to weakness. Um, Paul was made so weak that he had to be led from that road to Damascus to Ananias' house by his companions. And this posture of weakness, this is something Saul's totally unfamiliar with. All he's ever known is strength, strength of will, strength of intellect, strength of reputation. He believed in a strong God with a strong Messiah to create a strong people for himself. And now he's brought to a position of weakness. This is true for all religious people. What's true of all religious people is their commitment to strength. But what strength means is that you can do life independent from God. And remember, that's the basic definition of sin. And living life independent from God sounds not, yes, that's religious people, but it's irreligious people too. What religious people want to do is what they want God to do they want to do what God says, but they want to do what God says on their own moral resources. Then you've got irreligious people, and they want to ignore what God says, and then they want to construct a reality that they can be strong within. 
So yes, religious and irreligious people are different, but their independence from God, that's their main problem, and that's the same. And so what conversion does is it makes you weak. But remember, we follow Jesus who left the strength of heaven to become a man with a weak body who allowed himself to be killed and buried. This is a Jesus that we follow and we walk in his steps in weakness. Conversion involves from going from strength to weakness. It also involves going from opposition to intimacy. You see what Jesus tells Ananias. So Jesus shows up to Saul there on the road and he shows up to Ananias in his house. And Jesus gives Ananias a vision that Saul is praying in verse 11. He says, there you will find Saul praying. I think this is really significant. Because Saul had been doing plenty of praying in his life. In fact, he had probably prayed, he had said more prayers than anybody else in Israel at that point. But there's a difference in praying and saying your prayers. Saying your prayers, it's about duty and form, recitation. But praying is about submitting to a real God with real honesty from your real heart. And that's the way all loving relationships operate, aren't they? They're not rote. They're not predictable. There's a dynamism about relationships, especially your relationship with God. And here you've got Saul. Jesus was someone he was opposed to, and now he's someone that he loves. He doesn't just say his prayer, he prays. And this is what God wants to do with you. Yes, he wants you to believe the truth of his word. Yes, he wants you to do what he says, but he also wants to be personal with you. He wants to be precious to you. And when Jesus becomes precious to you, you'll pray as opposed to saying your prayers. That's how you know you've got sight. The last thing we see is he moves from isolation to community. One of the things that really got me about this text this week is that God doesn't convert, uh, he, he, he converts Saul in two parts. You see it? The first part was blinding him on the road, and the second part was opening his eyes in Ananias' house. And in between, God leaves him hanging. He's got to sit in darkness. He's got scales on his eyes. And if you ask me what scales are, I tried to figure it out, and I can't, I couldn't. But he had to sit in darkness, and he had to wait. But when Jesus shows up to him a second time, he doesn't show back up in this great light like he did on the road and give him his sight back. He could have done that. But instead, he sends Ananias. He sends a Christian to proclaim a message, something pretty boring compared to part one. And when Ananias shows up, he gives him the message. The scales fall off his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized. And so in Ananias, Saul has his first friend. Saul went from being isolated from God's people to now being enfolded into the community of God. And the first fruits is Ananias. And so as we read through the scriptures, it's impossible to see that you can be a Christian and not be a part of God's people. There's no such thing as practicing your faith by yourself. 
You got to move out. You got to initiate. You got to love people who are unlovable. Remember Ananias' excuse? You remember his excuse? He said, are you kidding me? You want me to talk to the guy who's been killing all the people who are like me? But that's the call of community. It's not just so that Saul will have a friend. It's so that Ananias gets over his fear to make a friend. You've got to love unlovable people and you've got to receive love like Saul did. And when that happens, community happens. You move from isolation into community. And you've got sight. So in conclusion, can I ask you just a really, really simple question? Are you a Christian? Have you been confused about this whole deal? Have you been confused that being religious is actually being converted? I've been in the church my whole life. I was never all that athletic. I wasn't very smart. But I was great at church. Really good at it. My grandparents went to my home church. My parents went to my home church. All my friends were at my home church. I loved going. I went on Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and I liked going after school sometimes. I thought I had this whole Jesus thing figured out. Then I got to college. And in college, I came face to face with the arrogance in my soul. I came face to face that I really wanted to be strong. I didn't want to be weak at all. I came face to face that my religion was very cold. I came face to face with the truth that I really was isolated. Sure, I knew people, but people didn't know the darkest things about me. I needed sight. I needed something more. And when I got to college, all that began to unravel, and all of a sudden, being weak didn't sound like such a bad idea if it meant that I could have true heart religion, if I could have true friendship. And God was gracious to me. He gave me sight. He's renewed it again and again and again. How about you? Are you aware of your weakness? Are you acutely aware of your weakness to the degree that you can be specific about it? The crazy thing about Saul is that in 2 Corinthians 12, he would say that being weak was being strong. Saul the Pharisee, Saul pre-Acts 9, would never say anything about that. But when we say when we're weak, we're strong, what we're really saying is that Jesus is quite strong. How about your relationship with God? Do you pray or just say your prayers? Is your relationship with God honest? If not, you might be unknowingly opposed to Jesus. You might be able to ace your Bible quiz. Good for you. So could Saul. You might pray, but intimacy with God was totally foreign to Saul. It might be to you. How about this isolation thing? You know, Saul moves into relationship, and what we see about Saul, really, his whole life, his training is all about him. At the end of Acts chapter 7, he's alone. In Acts chapter 8, we don't really have any recollection with anybody except that he had companions who took him to Ananias' house. 
But in the remainder of Acts, starting with Ananias, it's hard to find Saul alone. He's deeply known, and other people are all around him all the time, and he knows other people deeply. So what does it say about you? It begs this question, doesn't it? Are there people in your life who know your glory and in your shame? So are you a Christian? Has the blinding light of Jesus broken through? Maybe it's broken through on you tonight. If so, you might just have been converted. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you um, send your truth to collide with me. Oh, I, 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 I fall back into the religious way so easy. And Lord, I don't want to. So Lord, would you be so kind to me uh, to shatter me if necessary. Lord, that I might see. Would you do this for my friends too? In Christ's name, amen.